Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi dhammaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi saṅgaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Today we will be talking about covering um, the last of the suttas from the middle-length discourses. One that doesn't get enough attention. It's the Indriya Bhavana Sutta. It's number 152 in the Majjhimanikaya. It is a significant sutta because it addresses the faculty, sometimes referred to as the Salayatanang or the sense spheres, the six senses and our relationship with their objects in the world. We have the Indriya Sangvaras in the in different contexts they do come up in the teachings where we are taught how to restrain these six the sense restraints Sangvara and how we can develop them, applying the right effort, four aspects of right effort. But today, in this very unique sutta, we see how Lord Buddha beautifully uses the six senses to help the person understand that it can also be a conduit, a gateway for awakening. While we're applying restraint, while we're applying discernment. As a method for sati. So I'm not going to give much uh, background on it, other than just what I shared because, because I, uh, it is not as long as the Mahasatipatthana, of course, but it is, uh, my goal is to finish it today. Um, so let's, uh, without further ado, let's begin. Indriya Bhavana Sutta, Development of the Faculties, Majjhimanikaya 152. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living in the Mukhelu forest in the region of Kajangala. Then the young Brahmin Uttara, who was a pupil of Parasariya, approached the Blessed One, and after exchanging friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. Then the Blessed One said to Uttara, 
Uttara, does the Brahman Parasariya teach the development of the faculties to his disciples? Parasariya was uh, a Vedic uh, scholar, um, and um, Uttara, in order for him to be sent, because what normally teachers would do in those days, they would get their most excellent um, student who um, it's called the three Vedas to become a master at, on, uh, at the three Vedas. Uh, they would send their pupils, their number one pupil to the teachers, their contemporaries. And you see a lot of examples of similar individuals like Uttara coming uh, throughout the 45 years of Lord Buddha's teaching career, approaching to ask questions or just to hear him, to observe his behavior, etc., and then report back to their teachers. So here we have an example of, we don't have much background information here, uh, but um, it's interesting how Lord Buddha immediately starts questioning him. Uttara, does the Brahmin Parasariya teach the development of the faculties to his disciples? Master Gautama, the Brahmin Parasariya does teach the development of the faculties to his disciples. And how, Uttara, does the Brahmin Parasariya teach the development of the faculties to his disciples? Here, Master Gautama, forms should not be seen by the eye. Sounds should not be heard with the ear. This is the method by which the Brahmin Parasariya teaches the development of the faculties to his disciples. So basically, he's saying, the teacher says, don't see forms. That's how you can develop your uh, eye faculty. Restrain your eyes, basically. And the same goes with his ears. And see how Lord Buddha uh, takes this and... Um, well, makes it even, uh, you know, comical in a sense. In that case, Uttara, according to the words of the Brahmin Parasariya, either a blind man or a deaf man would already be quite developed in their faculties. After all, a blind man already does not see any forms, and a deaf man already does not hear any sounds. When this was said, the young man, Uttara, the pupil of Parasariya, became silent, confused, and perplexed, with a drooping body hanging his face down as he sat there, unable to give a response. It can be quite an embarrassing situation when the whole premise of your teacher's uh, system is put on the spot like that. And it's a very good... Um, uh, argument, uh, if we can even call it that, but it's just a statement based on what Uttara shared about his teacher's uh, methodology in developing the faculties. But look how Lord Buddha, you see, you, you can detect his compassion and kindness here. He doesn't squeeze him any further. He doesn't um, insult him. He's not that type of a teacher. He's so caring because he's also looking for an opportunity to teach the person who obviously had wrong view and perhaps even carry the message back to Parasariya, his own teacher. 
The Blessed One, seeing the young man Uttara, the pupil of Parasarya, become silent, confused, and perplexed, with a drooping body hanging his face down as he sat there, unable to give a response, addressed the Venerable Ananda thus. See, he's now using Ananda. Lord Buddha is using Ananda as a sounding board, as, 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 as a third person, so that um, Uttara can hear it. Uh, through this um, re uh, reflecting surface called Ananda, Venerable Ananda. Ananda, it seems that the Brahmin Parasarya teaches a form of development of the faculties to his disciples that is quite different from the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline. And this is Lord Buddha's way to basically um, um, have Ananda invite Lord Buddha to teach the Dhamma, to teach the proper way of developing. So when Lord, Lord Buddha is saying this statement to Ananda, he's leaving the door open for Ananda to come out and say, Lord, could you please, now is the time uh, for you to teach us what is the incomparable and superior way of developing the faculties. And, and lo and behold, that's, uh, let's see what Venerable Ananda says. Blessed one, this is the right time. Now is the perfect time to teach the bhikkhus the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline. And on hearing and learning it from the Blessed One, they will remember and practice it. They, meaning the bhikkhus. Then, Ananda, listen carefully and pay close attention. I will now teach. Yes, Bhante, replied Ananda, and the Blessed One continued. By the way, some commentators have said that this last sutta of the Majjhima this sutta itself, was dedicated directly to Venerable Ananda. Um, so, a teaching given to Ananda. And, uh, but we see it also uh, more contextually. There's other people involved. But Venerable Ananda was struggling and, uh, to maintain his work on developing his faculties. So this could have also been a way for Lord Buddha to address that very crucial need for Venerable Ananda. And what Ananda is the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline? Here, Ananda, if the bhikkhu, while seeing a form, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking in him, at this he quickly becomes aware. This is liking, and this is disliking. And that is both liking and disliking that has arisen in me. All this I now know and understand to be the result of conditions, of a gross nature, something that is dependently arisen. On the other hand, this is peaceful. It is this that is sublime, namely, witnessing all this and whatever that arises with equanimity. First we see the conditionality of all things that arise, basically dukkha. And then 
we are seeing its contrast. On the other hand, he says, this is peaceful. This is sublime. Etang santang, etang panitang, yaditang, sabba sankara. It's the niroda, it's the nibbana, which is first you had the conditionality of forms, of things that arise, meaning suffering. And Lord Buddha is presenting the antidote for that, which is Nibbana. So instead of being lost in the sense faculties, pursuing liking and disliking or a combination of both, it's a waste of time because they will continue to spiral us into more and more and more episodes of unending samsara. But the key word here is equanimity, upekha. So the person needs to pull themselves out, which requires sati, as I was mentioning earlier. It requires the person to pull themselves out from being lost in the storyline of these indriyas or these sense faculties. And pull them back, pull them back, bring them back into that state of equanimity where you're observing, you're aware, but you are not invested anymore. You are not lost in what is being seen, as is the case here, I and forms. In this way, whatever arisen state that was liked or disliked, or both liked and disliked, fades away and vanishes, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. Test this like every teaching that you've ever been exposed to of the Dhamma from Lord Buddha, test it. Find yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, find yourself an experience that you like, you very much like, or the opposite, dislike, you despise, you hate. But before you get sucked into that whirlpool, you notice you're getting sucked in, you're getting more emotionally involved, attached to that experience, quickly remind yourself of a moment where you've experienced equanimity and slide into it and see what happens to that relationship that you just had with the liking, the dislike. What happened to that? And most importantly, what is the emotional signature, if you will, on the mind? Meaning, is there tranquility now versus the agitation that was there because even liking something creates a lot of agitation as you know when you're approaching that delicious meal delicious because you love that meal that sandwich or i don't know whatever it may be when you're leaning into it leaning more and more what is that that involves that's that's an involvement Upekka is more of a sliding into. Its dimensions are limitless. And it's very comforting. And it's safe. There definitely isn't the fear of you losing that liking that you're there. When you're lost in the indriya, in, 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 your, in your senses. But look at the example that Lord Buddha gives here. 
Just as someone with good eyesight, Ananda, every time opens and closes his eyes, or every time closes and opens his eyes, seeing forms and similarly with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking that may have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish ever so quickly and so easily, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. That means every time you're flickering your eyelids, you're closing and opening up your eyelids, he's saying, be mindful of that. Are you, how many times have you opened and closed your eyes during the last 10 seconds? Try it. Just open and close your eyes very quickly. And Lord Buddha's instruction here is, Every time that occurs, don't let it to occur haphazardly on its own, mindlessly. Because the forms that come in, in contact with the eyes, they're often much quicker. So we need to train. We need to train ourselves. And if you notice... There's a lot of speed involved in this. We have to be very rapid in our ability to stay with these different things because the Dhamma is not something that we read, is not just a sutta. What are we extracting so that we can apply in our lives? And here is the perfect, most beautiful example I can think of that so succinctly brings it back to our laps as far as its relatedness with our everyday practical lives, where the Dhamma can be applicable even in my physiology, how my body's moving, my eyes, my eyelashes are moving. Okay, am I aware? Because the moment that I train myself like that, next time I see something, I will be more prone into catching myself before I introduce the liking or disliking, before liking and disliking shows up. This is, the, this is the core of what we try to do when we're trying vipassana, for example. It's a moment-to-moment -moment experiencing. And this is where the Dhamma comes alive. So every time you open and close your eyes, every time you close and open your eyes, so he even makes the distinction between opening and closing and closing and opening. That means don't leave any one of these untouched with sati. So it's not, no longer like sitting there for one hour and that's it, you're good to go. That's a joke or going on a 10-day retreat, or 45-day, or 30-day retreat, or six-month retreat. They, they mean nothing when these moments are not infused with sati. That means you can just handle a lot of pressure. You can discipline yourself in that sense. That's all it means. It could be just an ego trip, which often cases it is. 
This ananda is called the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline. As the bhikkhu exercises radical attention with regard to forms appearing to the eyes. Radical attention here is also uh, often termed as wise reflection, or commentators use the terms as skillful attention. Attention is so important because it says where our interests lie. You've heard me mention chanda so many times. Chanda is that fervent desire, something. We need desire. In, in the Dhamma, we don't just flat out deny the importance of desire. No. Desire is necessary. Otherwise, you can't be here. You, you, you have the desire to learn something. You have the desire to be practicing. You have the desire for Nibbana. We, that sets us off in the right direction. But eventually, we relinquish even that desire. Eventually, we relinquish, let go of, give up the desire for Nibbana itself. And that's another reason why the Dhamma, Buddhism, is incomparable. There's no other religion like that. So attention stems from the source that we call the chanda, the curiosity, the enthusiasm, the interest. What is underneath it all? What is the root so every time you sit to meditate, for example, if your mind drifts off and usually it will have a theme, there usually is a weak spot, if you will, where your mind or attention goes somewhere else. Perhaps it's argumentation, it's, it's contentious behavior, it's arguing with yourself in your mind about something to someone, with someone. All these indicate where the person's interests are. Sometimes individuals approach and they ask questions and they say, as if there's these two parts of me, Bhante. Well, yeah. That means the person is not looking at their most basic core interest. And that is where we can identify as to where the attention uh, and why the attention is going where it's not supposed to. And that is Manasikara. Manasikara. And Manasikara, Yoniso Manasikara specifically, it's taking us as uh, Bhante Nyanandanda would, would call it, Yoni means the origin, point of origin, the beginning. And it, so it takes us to the beginning point. And here, the flickering of your eyelids is the beginning, is the origin. Meaning you are catching something with your eyes. Instead of being already pulled into the black hole of liking and disliking, and then trying to pull yourself out of it. So the attention always has to be the main focus. When hindrances, like we did uh, in the previous weeks with the Mahasatipatthana, especially in the 
in the Dhammanupassana where we went over the Nivarana, the hindrances. So oftentimes your mind will go where you don't want it to go. Well, you don't want it on the surface, but deep down, every time you droop, you fall asleep while you're sitting, guess where your main focus is, where your attachment is, where your attention is. Yeah, I think I need more sleep. Yeah, I don't think I've been resting enough or debating with yourself or doubting, doubting the path, doubting the technique, doubting yourself, doubting the teacher, etc. That is where the chanda is, the interest is. And wherever the interest is, that is where the attention going to go. And the next time a form shows up in front of your eyes, an object that is visible, guess you, you probably, if you really struggle hard, you might be able to capture a few moments with sati. But the rest of the time, your mind is going to go where the interest is. The interest is. So it's not just a hindrance showing up, it's Mara, it's a third person coming in or doing the outside world. It is our interest, first and foremost. That's why we have to set our attitude correctly from the start. Why am I even practicing? That is another way of establishing a strong enough of an interest in you, enthusiasm, that fervent energy, that fervent desire. It's like that long-distance swimmer that looks at the island across, maybe a few miles away, and he's standing on the beach just looking, and the waves are touching his feet, and he says, and he looks, and he looks, and he says, okay, that's my destination. That is Chanda. The goal is being set, and then he jumps and swims and swims and swims, and every once in a while, lifts his head from the water, looks, gauges where he's at. That has to be there for the practice to develop, as Lord Buddha is saying here. Radical attention has to be there. So it's not just be mindful, be here and now. What does that mean? Most people don't know that. So much is, is underneath it, at play. And here we have a beautiful sutta where Lord Buddha is going into the nitty-gritty stuff and explaining what's what. Let's go into the, uh, the ears now. Further, Ananda, if the bhikkhu, while hearing a sound, experiences liking or disliking, etc., and um, he quickly becomes aware, this is liking and this is disliking, and this is both liking and disliking. All this I now know and understand to be the result of conditions of a gross nature, something that is dependently arisen. On the other hand, this is peaceful. It is this that is sublime. Namely, witnessing all this and whatever arises with equanimity. This, whatever is happening, and whatever arises. Because sometimes we want to limit ourselves. Okay, I have a handle on this. I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm hearing this. In this case, it's the sound. So we focus on that and we say, okay, okay, I have my bearings now. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm balancing now, but 
we forget that we're not in a vacuum, there's other information coming in. So it's crucial for us to use that experience as an example, as training for whatever might happen afterwards. So you might hear a beautiful uh, song, you know, bird, bird song, and you're mesmerized by it. You're like, yeah, yeah. But then you say, oh, 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 wait. What did the Indriya Bhavana Sutta say? Ah, okay, so I'm catching myself hearing it. Okay, let me pull back into and drop into state of equanimity. Okay, okay. And then all of a sudden, you hear a loud dog barking or a loud noise. You go, ah! Now you're caught into that storyline. Meanwhile, both of them had to be looked at, approached in the same manner. In the same manner. No preferential treatment. In this way, whatever risen state that was liked or disliked or both liked and disliked fades away and vanishes. So that intensity that was there, the moment the person is pulling themselves back into upekha, into equanimity, suddenly that intensity is gone. Now, of course, many of us are going to have a liking towards the bird singing versus the dog barking. So we'll say, okay, okay, let's get rid of the noise of the dog, but the bird song is not bad, you know? Let's keep some of that. Equanimity doesn't make those distinctions. That's why it's called equanimous, equanimous, equal, balanced. You're not jolted. After all, that going back and forth hot and cold is what kept us in samsara all this time. We've been pursuing whatever is enjoyable, delightful, and pushing away whatever is the opposite. So we haven't learned anything. And here, Lord Buddha is giving us the tools by saying, this is peaceful. Etang santang. Etang panitang. This is delightful. What? Distilling of all of these sankharas. Because I'm liking something or disliking something for many, many reasons. The sankharas are there, folks. Don't forget. Those are the habitual tendencies that we have. Those are the baggages we are carrying from life to life. What makes us say, oh, this is me. This is how I click. This is how I resonate towards things. Behave in a certain way. That's my personality. All these are just made up, conditional. But the real release from that, that is where Nibbana occurs. That is the freedom. Otherwise, what freedom are we talking about? What is this release that we talk about? If not a release from suffering, from not being pulled into these stories, just as a strong man, and this is where Lord Buddha gives an example, a simile to each of these, uh, as you're going to notice. The first one was when a person is just moving, uh, you know, closing and opening their eyes as quickly. Here, 
uh, Lord Buddha is presenting another example. Just as a strong man, Ananda, would snap his finger with perfect ease and clearly hear its sound within that very moment. Similarly, with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking that may have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish ever so quickly and so easily, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. To rest in equanimity. That's a lovely image. Imagine. How fast was that? Try that. The speed is crucial. The speed with which we see how things are happening. We do other things where speed is important. If you're driving a car, trying to catch hold of a, of, a, of, a, of a bus that you are about to miss. And numerous other examples from your lives. Speed is important, but it is of utmost importance when we're practicing and working with this thing called mind, which is so powerful and has a head start and the defilements in our hearts, they know everything about us. Everything. So we have to be equally agile and quick in not being pulled into these stories that, uh, in this case, the sound. Because what is sound after all? Sound is a vibration that is created, and air molecules are the ones that are carrying it into your ears, into your eardrum. That's what it is. You're capturing not the sound per se, but the air vibration that is pushing and pushing and pushing and finding its way all the way into your eardrum. Because if you were out in space, there's no air. You can't hear sounds. So that's another way of looking at the conditionality of sound. You hear something very annoying, something very distasteful and you say why did this happen why did this happen i don't want to hear this i don't what if you were in another room in another building in another city altogether on the opposite side of the planet would that sound have bothered you that was done, that was made on the other side of the planet, in another city, in another building, in another room. So you see another way of looking at the conditionality of it. But it, requ it requires a mind that is quick to capture the sound as it comes up. And my relationship to the sound, to know where the difference is between the bird song and not the quality or the nature of that sound, but my relationship to it. That's the key. This Ananda is called the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline. As the bhikkhu exercises radical attention with regard to sounds being heard by the ears, 
Further, Ananda, if the bhikkhu, while smelling an odor, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking, uh, quickly he becomes aware. This is liking and this is disliking, and that is both liking and disliking that has arisen in me. All this I now know and understand to be the result of conditions, etc., etc., and... Uh, in this way, whatever arisen state that was liked or disliked, or both liked and disliked, fades away and vanishes, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. I love this image that Lord Buddha gives to uh, demonstrate the, um, the simile that he's providing for the nose uh, faculty uh, capturing its object, which is an odor. Just as raindrops, Ananda, falling on the slightly tilted lotus petal, simply rolling off, and uh, they do not remain attached. And similarly, with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking that may have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish ever so quickly and so easily while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. Have you seen lotus flowers in pictures and maybe in real life? Some of them are huge. Some of them are small. But they're not flat. They're very curvy. Some of them are very rounded, both uh, uh, vertically and horizontally. And when a water droplet falls, a rain or dew in the morning, it doesn't stay there. It quickly goes into the bottom, collects there. Slightly tilted lotus petal, just like raindrops, heavy raindrops, simply roll off. Can we have that relationship with an odor, a smell that you get? Or do you always have to be pulled into some fairy tale, some story from your past, from memories, as you are carried away? Oftentimes we have a tough day or something happens in the day at work or somewhere. It might last about 26 seconds, one minute, one hour. But that might take place early in the day, maybe 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. But come around, you know, 10 p.m., when that rolls over, you look at, and it's dark, 10 p.m., and guess what we still are thinking about those 26 seconds, that minute of how could they, how did they, why did they? It's exhausting, it's draining. So we don't have to necessarily have experienced Nibbana in order for us to feel this ease and the the, the quality, the healing quality of the Dhamma to really be felt in our lives. 
when we apply any of these teachings in reference to such circumstances, the moment we let go of that by pulling ourselves back into an equanimous state, it's you moving away from those 26 seconds. Because it's not just 26 seconds, it's your 24 hours. In, in fact, your whole life, and that's how many of us live our lives, mindlessly. This ananda is called the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the Noble One's discipline. As the bhikkhu exercises radical attention with regard to odors smelled by the nose, we often think that Nibbana is going to happen on its own one day in the future, maybe after death. All that is nonsense. We must be tasting small releases here and there, small liberations here and there. Liberation doesn't come by someone else, by just reading a text, a sutta, or listening to it, or whatever. It has to be applied by us. This is application-based methodology, a system that works only if it is applied. Not sitting there just meditating, trying to be mindful, and, and not applying these principles. Otherwise, it would be like Parasari uh, describing it to his students, saying, oh, close your ears, close your nose, close your eyes, and you're good to go. You're meditating. That's what many of us do, though. Many people go to Satipatthana retreats, and that's exactly what they're doing. Being sucked into the sensation of the body, this and that. And even though they play the whole tape, in their mind, anicca dukkanata, anicca dukkanata, anicca dukkanata, meaningless, meaningless. Because the person, the moment they leave and they walk to the bathroom, they're missing all these opportunities. Sights are being seen mindlessly, sounds are being heard mindlessly, smells are being Odors are being smelled mindlessly. Where did the Satipatthana, the whole thing, go? Because we are lost in the stories. And there is absolutely no gain from that, if that is the method that the practice is going for the individual. So, uh, same way with... Um, here we get to the tasting of a flavor. Uh, if the bhikkhu, while tasting a flavor, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking. At this, he quickly becomes aware, this is liking and this is disliking. And that is both. That has arisen in me. All this I now know and understand to be the result of conditions of a gross nature, something that is dependently arisen. On the other hand, this is peaceful. It is this that is sublime, namely, witnessing all this and whatever arises with equanimity. In this way, whatever arisen state that was liked or disliked or both liked and disliked fades away and vanishes, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. 
just as a strong man spits out a ball of spittle collected at the tip of his tongue, ananda. Um, it's not the most pleasant image, but it is something that we've all done or do at times uh, when uh, there's the need for it. And similarly, with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking, that may have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish ever so quickly and so easily, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. Bhante Nyanananda says this beautifully. He says, using this simile, he says, Lord Buddha is trying to tell us here that there is Nibbana even at the tip of the tongue. Even when you're hawking, when you're getting ready to spit out that thing that phlegm and that, the disgusting stuff you've collected from your throat, your whatever, you're about to spit it out. Can you do that mindfully? Can you? Instead of holding on to that grudge, I can't believe she looked at me that way, or I can't believe that they said this about me. We're missing out on life when we are not practicing with so much vigilance, diligence. In that way, the six, these indriyas, these, these, the development of the faculties, each of these can turn into a doorway that takes us straight to Nibbana. Because the moment we see their arising, the arising of the contact, because that's what it is, right? There's contact that is happening. But then the eye is capturing it. The nose is capturing it. The ear is capturing it. But is there mindfulness to greet that contact, to see it before it turns into something bigger? Something other than just pure contact. Dite ditamata, Lord Buddha said to Bahia, remember? When seeing, just see. It's just the scene. Don't add anything else. The liking, dislike. This ananda is called the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the noble one's discipline. As the bhikkhu exercises radical attention with regard to flavors tasted by the tongue. <clears throat> Further ananda, if the bhikkhu, while touching an object, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking at this, he quickly becomes aware. This is liking and this is disliking, and that is both liking and disliking that has arisen in me. All this I now know and understand to be the result of conditions. In this way, whatever arisen state that was liked or disliked or both liked and disliked fades away and vanishes, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. And here's the simile. Just as a strong man could quickly stretch out his arm and bend his outstretched arm, ananda, and similarly with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, 
or both the liking and disliking that may have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish, ever so quickly and easily, while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. This is the example, like a flexed arm, stretched arm, that's it. That's how fast. And you have this example in the suttas, many, many, many places, where it's usually referred to when Lord Buddha is leaving um, a certain place to go somewhere else, uh, physically reappearing, let's say in the Deva Brahma realms, or you know, in a, in one of the caves to encourage uh, one of his students. Let's say he would. That is the term that would you be used also with some of his Aryasavakas. But here we're seeing it in reference to uh, the body. Uh, in touching an object, a surface, let's say, if you're touching sandpaper, or if you've just clipped your nails, and it's very sensitive, that area, and um, you touch a tough, a rough surface, all of a sudden it goes, ugh. It, and for many people, it's uncomfortable. It's, they dislike that. Uh, or you touch uh, some, uh, you know, a surface that's so soft, like cotton or lace, um, um, oh, we say, oh, that's so nice. Well, there's liking and disliking. There's a story that I'm following, I'm going to be lost in. Before that, just quickly capture that state in its contact state. Be mindful of that and quickly bring yourself back to equanimity instead of being pulled into the story. Further, Ananda, if the bhikkhu, while thinking about something, experiences liking or disliking or both, at this he becomes aware, this is liking and this is disliking. In this way, whatever arisen state that was liked or disliked or both liked and disliked fades away and vanishes. While the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. Just as uh, two or three drops of water fall on the surface of an iron plate that has been heated for an entire day. They would immediately vaporize and vanish, even if they were dropped slowly. Ananda, and similarly with any kind of sensation, no matter how fast the liking or disliking, or both, that might have, might have arisen in the bhikkhu, they all fade away and vanish ever so quickly and so easily while the mind is brought back again and again to rest in equanimity. If you've ever seen a hot plate or a pan that you are, you know, you put it on the fire the whole day, so it's red hot, try to drop, you know, just a few droplets of water and see what happens. They just go so quickly. And Lord Buddha is saying, no matter how slowly you drop them, they will just vaporize them instantaneously. Hmm. Can you have that same relationship with your thoughts that show up out of nowhere? Instead of latching on to them and saying, and you weave them into things, into story, into papanchas. But the moment sati is there and you notice this thought showing up, and you allow it to quickly, instantaneously vaporize, that is your mini nibbana right there. Because you're not in suffering anymore. 
that you definitely were going to be if you kept looking, kept looking at those thoughts. So this is what Lord Buddha is advising us. So uh, this ananda is called the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the noble one's discipline, as the bhikkhu exercises radical attention with regard to thoughts cognized by the mind. Ananda, this is the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the noble one's discipline. So this is for the uh, average bhikkhu, uh, the putujana, if you will. Um, now we see Lord Buddha giving the set of instructions as to how a disciple, a noble disciple in training, uh, trains in the faculties. And how, Ananda, does the noble disciple in training practice the path? This is a, an Arya student, um, someone who's still a student. He's not an Arahant yet, uh, or she's not an Arahant yet. Here, Ananda, whenever a bhikkhu, upon seeing a form as a, uh, a form, as a result, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking. At this, the bhikkhu quickly becomes alerted. Ah, what's, what is that? What is that that they see? Not the thing that they see, but what is it that is happening in me? That is the what is that part. They become alerted. So quickly the light goes off, the alarm sounds. They become worried, ashamed, as he feels embarrassed for having that liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking. Similarly, whenever a bhikkhu, upon hearing a sound, as a result experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking, as the bhikkhu becomes quickly alerted, worried, ashamed, as he feels embarrassed for having that liking or disliking, or both the liking and disliking. Again, this is like I've said many times about the precepts, when um, many people might have this, you know, oh, they feel this guilt or remorse. That is not what Lord Buddha is saying here when the, he's saying the person becomes worried, ashamed, or embarrassed. Just the thought of it, just the understanding of, oh, look at me, I'm still looking at that slice of pizza. I'm still reminiscing on that memory I had of this beautiful place somewhere in the world. Ah, yes, that was lovely. The moment you become aware of it, it has a bad taste in the mouth, as they say, quickly. It's like, what am I doing? What am I doing? That is the feeling of shame or embarrassment that the person feels and but they are not in staying in that feeling of you know shame or whatever um, uh, or embarrassment rather they are quickly using that as a springboard to jump back to where equanimity similarly whenever a bhikkhu upon smelling an odor as a result experiences liking or disliking or both at this, the bhikkhu quickly becomes alerted, worried. Worried why? First of all, they will tell themselves that, hey, 
I'm a noble disciple. I'm not supposed to be doing this. What am I doing? Lost in papanchas, thinking about like this or that. What is this? If I stay here longer, then it means I'm going to have less and less moments where I am experiencing mindfully life happening because who knows what else I'm missing out. My friend walked in, said a few words. I even forgot what they said because I was too lost in my thoughts about this other thing. So that creates worry in the mind of the person. And they say, no, 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 this cannot happen. So I have to use that to come back to Upekha again and again. Similarly, whenever Bhikkhu, upon tasting a flavor, as a result, uh, experiences liking and disliking, and the Bhikkhu becomes uh, alerted, worried, ashamed, as he feels embarrassed. Similarly, with touching an object, and also upon thinking about something. As a result, I'm jumping, by the way, through these. That's why you have the PDFs, and I highly encourage you to go over them carefully, one by one. As a result, experiences liking or disliking or both liking and disliking in him. At this, the bhikkhu quickly becomes alerted, worried, ashamed as he feels embarrassed for having that liking or disliking or both the liking and disliking. Ananda, this is how the noble disciple in training practices the path. And how, Ananda? So basically... Sometimes people think that, oh, once um, I'm a Sotapanna, I'm a Sakadagamin, or I'm an Anagamin, it's going to happen on its own. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. It takes work. It takes work. So you don't become uh, uh, awakened haphazardly in passing without doing any work. It requires work. So that is what we see here. Every time the person is flicking, flickering their eyelids or, or hearing a sound, uh, their mind is there. And if they're not, they become worried and concerned. Why is it not? So they use that as an opportunity to gain more insight, to gain more wisdom by applying Yoniso Manasikara, to check where is my chanda? Hmm. Maybe I'm thinking about that gelato I had in Italy. Ah, yes. Why? Why am I there? Come over here. Come over here. Where is my attention? Ah, okay, yes, my chanda was misplaced. Ah, okay. All right, you see it, you fix it, you move forward. You don't dwell on it. Otherwise, it'll turn into remorse. We don't want that either. And how, Ananda, is one considered a noble one with faculties developed? Here we are looking at the Arahant. How the Arahant would, with faculties developed already. <clears throat> Here, Ananda, if a bhikkhu, upon seeing a form, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking in him, at this, if he wishes, May I see the repulsive in what is attractive? Oh, you're talking about the gelato, huh? Hmm. How about the sewage you saw in India? 
right outside Taj Mahal before you walked in. So there is no attachment there to one, the liked versus the disliked. So they're very agile. That's what we're understanding from the statement. There isn't an attachment to one over the other. If he wishes, may I see the attractive in what is repulsive? He is able to perceive it as such. If he wishes, may I see the attractive in what are both repulsive and attractive? He is able to perceive them as such. If he wishes, may I see the repulsive in what are both attractive and repulsive? He is able to perceive them as such. And if he wishes, by avoiding them both, may I overcome what is repulsive and attractive? He is able to rest in equanimity while continuously exercising radical attention towards all things being experienced. Yoni Somara Sikara towards all things being experienced. That's why an Arahant does not make new Kamma. They don't make new Kamma because their asavas, their mental con contaminants have all been destroyed. There is no liking and disliking, holding an agenda. They're aware, they're not dead, their senses are there, they are alert. So long as they have the five khandas, they're alert. And they're also alert to any tendencies that might be there from the past. But they're alert, they're observing every single one, every single experience that is happening is not going by without being stamped getting the stamp of approval if you will of sati so that was the form and the same applies for the on hearing a sound um, so i'm not going to read every single one um, and upon smelling an odor upon tasting a flavor Upon touching an object, uh, let me read this one. Further, Ananda, if a bhikkhu upon touching an object experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking in him, at this, if he wishes, may I see the repulsive in what is attractive, he is able to perceive it as such. If he wishes, may I see the attractive in what is repulsive, he is able to perceive it as such. If he wishes, may I see the attractive and what are both repulsive and attractive, he is able to perceive them as such. If he wishes, may I see the repulsive in what are both attractive and repulsive, he is able to perceive them as such. And if he wishes, by avoiding them both, may I overcome what is repulsive and attractive, he is able to rest in equanimity while continuously exercising radical attention towards all things being experienced. There was an example that Lord Buddha gives in the suttas, talking about the skin. And he gives a simile, as he was you know, masterful in doing so, applying, providing similes and he gives the image of a, of a cow that has a portion of its skin 
open. So it's an open wound. And he says, wherever this cow goes to rest its body, especially the wound that is still open and fresh in a sense, the little organisms are going to creep in, flies, insects, bugs. If it tries to lean against the wall, they're going to come and crawl in and try to eat his flesh. If the cow goes into the water, organisms in the water are going to come and try to eat the flesh. If the cow lays down, that is what's also going to happen. Worms and animals and bugs and things, insects are going to crawl in, bacteria. In all circumstances, there's going to be suffering. Why? Because there is the body. Body has conditions. Anything that is the result of conditions is suffering. That's why Nibbana is called the unconditioned. The unconditioned. Because there's no suffering there. But it's not a place. It's not a place. Some people think that Nibbana, the deathless state, is something to be attained after death. No. Deathlessness is something to be experienced not after death. Otherwise, what's the point? The person's dead. Deathlessness means it needs to happen, experienced by the person in this life, here and now. And here we have beautiful examples given by Lord Buddha in how that can come about. So the Arhant here, when they are seeing, they're just like the cow, very, very cognizant of the wound. Because they still occupy a body, you know. They can still sense, ah, yes, ah, yes. All these things happening, coming to their awareness. They're aware. There's not a moment that passes by where they're not alert. Their Yoniso Manasikara is on constantly, 24-7. Unless they go to sleep for a brief time. With many of them, I'm presuming um, uh, it's also there, even in that state. So, in the uh, last portion here, it says, Further on, if a bhikkhu, upon thinking about something, experiences liking or disliking, or both liking and disliking in him. So even if in the case of thinking about something, sometimes we have these attachments to thoughts, to concepts, to perceptions, and how it makes us feel to think in, line of, in, in those lines. Even those, so long as it is not creating a sense of tranquility. There's a sutta, a wonderful uh, sutta in the Diganikai. It's called Potapada Sutta. Potapada. Um, it's a, a sutta between ascetics uh, uh, from other sects uh, and Lord Buddha talking to Potapada, this individual. And there's a section in it. It says, Lord Buddha says, um, the wise disciple is someone who uh, once taught to 
pull away from thinking and planning, which by the way is the normal state of the mind. That's what we're always engaged in, right? When I say normal, that's what I mean. We're always engaged in constructing and weaving papanjas. The moment that person makes that resolution to pull away from thinking and planning and fall into a state of, you know what, I'm not going to think and plan anymore. And every time they do, they become cognizant of it and they pull themselves out. The more they do this, eventually, Lord Buddha says, they experience cessation. Cessation of what? Cessation of suffering, which is what? Which is Nibbana. These are not fairy tales. These are not, it could happen type of a scenario under, no, they do happen and will happen if the person is applying themselves correctly. And the key to that is the attention that one gives to the practice. Because even pulling yourself away from thinking and planning requires you to constantly be on alert. Oh, there it is. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking again. I'm thinking again. Okay, okay, that's okay. Let's pull back. Let's pull back. Let's pull back. The pulling back is to where? Towards Upekka, where there isn't this judgmental position taking. Ananda, this is how one is considered a noble one with faculties developed. Therefore, Ananda, I have now taught you the incomparable and superior method of developing the faculties as taught in the noble one's discipline. I have also taught you how the noble disciple in training practices the path. In addition, I have taught you how one is considered a noble one with faculties developed. Now, Whatever a caring teacher can do for his disciples out of compassion, I have done that for you all. Go, Ananda, and sit at the roots of these trees or make use of those empty kutis, the huts, by secluding yourself and meditate, Ananda. Do not be negligent or else you will regret it and be remorseful later. This is my advice to you. This is what the Blessed One said, and the Venerable Ananda was delighted and inspired by the words spoken by the Blessed One. Sad, sad, sad. We're masters at making excuses not to be practicing. We're masters at it, in deceiving ourselves. I'm not talking about the one or two or three hours sitting that you do per day. But we're masters at brushing off sati, removing the responsibility from our shoulders when it comes to where is my attention now when I doze off, when I sleep, when I allow myself to sleep, when I don't 
pull myself up and say, no, I'm going to, I don't care. I'm not going to die. Nobody died from a lack of sleep. I don't know of anyone who has died from a lack of sleep. Webu Sayadaw was a person who practiced, who was a, who was a, a sitter, they're called, engaging in the sitting practice, which is one of the dutangas. That means they never lie down. And he would encourage bhikkhus, he would encourage everyone. Don't be so quick in going and taking rest. That's the visible, that's the physical version of it. But what about when we are giving up our sati? Let me eat this chocolate first. Let me enjoy this and then I'll practice sati, Bhante. Just, just let me eat this delicious meal. Let me enjoy this. Sometimes it also happens even when you're in bed and the weather is cold or whatever, but you're in bed and it feels so comfy and you're like, yes, this is my opportunity to let go and to just lounge. Oh, look how, feel how these bed sheets feel against my skin, my face on the pillow. It's the perfect height. Oh, this is, per this is heaven. Guess what? That is liking. And one of you was asking me a few weeks ago whether Bhante that was uh, that can be considered uh, engaging in sensual uh, lust. And the answer to that, to a person who's a practitioner, is an absolute yes. Yes. There was a bhikkhu once, um, I don't know if I've shared this story with you, but it's a brief one. He goes to Pindapada, his alms rounds, and then he comes back. He's, a, he's, a, he's dwelling in the, in the forest by himself. So he comes back to his kuti and uh, he eats his food. And then he decides to take a, you know, take a shower, basically go into the pond close by. So he goes into the pond and he submerges himself, possibly it was in the summertime in India, very, very hot. As he's doing so, he sees lotus flowers around him and the breeze is blowing and he just stands there and he just goes, takes that whiff of air coming in and he smiles and he's like, oh, so delighted, so happy. I mean, come on, how great can that, you know, can anything be greater than that in his mind at that moment? Well, there is a deva who's watching him, not just watching him, but watching his mind. And the deva apparently is wise. And the deva says, I'm going to teach him a lesson. And she appears or he appears and deva says, you're a thief. You just stole the fragrance of the lotus. And the bhikkhu says, what, why? How, how, I, I didn't touch it. I didn't cut it. I didn't take it away. How could you call me a thief? I'm a bhikkhu. I can't steal anything. And the deva says, you 
are not a putujjana. You have dedicated your life to attain to the highest goal. So you are working towards the adhicitta to awaken your mind. So of course I know you didn't cut it, you didn't take it, you didn't steal it, but where's your mind? You're supposed to be watching your mind because you became delighted in the fragrance. You liked, you liked the fragrance. And he sees what the point of the deva is and he bows down and says, thank you, thank you. And then he says, he asks, um, oh, please, Deva, please, uh, next time you see me go off the rails and I'm not mindful, please come in and warn me. And the Deva says, oh, no, that is not my job, mister. You go ahead. That is your job. You think I, have a, I don't have other things to do? Your job is to be mindful of what you are doing in thoughts, speech, and actions. So we can never relinquish that position. I mean, you close your mouth whenever there's a storm, right? The sandstorm or something where you see some bugs flying. You don't leave your mouth open. You protect yourself. That's the same principle that Lord Buddha is asking us to do. So I will pause here and uh, see if there are any thoughts, questions, comments, again, about the practice and the Dhamma, please. I hope it uh, was an interesting talk for you. I'm not sure how to raise my hand. No, but we see you. Go uh, ahead. So um, the uh, story of Ananda is interesting to me because uh, my understanding is that he, like every word that we know that the Buddha said was uh, from his recollection, right? Uh, so majority. that means he, the majority. Yeah, so he heard probably more uh, lectures or discourses than anyone else in history, right? Yet he, he wasn't an arahant. And he, he saw people becoming arahants. Um, um, I, don't, I don't know if he was an anagami or a set anagami or whatever, but I, I'm thinking that, you know, the famous story that he sort of uh, became an arahant just the night before the, uh, the council and uh, he's laying down. He must have said, okay, forget it. I, I give up wanting to be an arahant, you know, it's okay. I'm okay if I'm not an arahant. He became an arahant, so uh, it's kind of inspiring to me, you know, because mm. I have this craving, you call it Shanda, but it, it can get a bit too much, I think. And uh, mm. He must have really wanted to be an arahant, right? Because he wanted to be part of the council. And mm. he had to have just given it up, right? He figured, well, 
I don't need this, or you know what I mean? Like he's economity, economity, and uh, uh, Terry, can I ask you? To, to, sorry, Terry, could I ask you to hold the camera a little bit more steady because uh, <laughs> I'm getting dizzy. <laughs> I'm gesturing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just want to make a comment and get your view on on Ananda. Get mm -hmm. this student was uh, addressed to him. Any comments that are welcome? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. I mean. It, it, so many of us to this day, 20, almost 26 centuries later, find such an inspiration in Venerable Ananda. Um, and there was no surprise there, I guess, because Lord Buddha picked him to be his, um, his attendant for the latter part of the, his life. He was his attendant for 25 years. Um, and so he was not a young person when he became Lord Buddha's attendant. So they were very close in age, they were close in height, they were cousins. He was also the half-brother of Venerable Anuruddha, uh, Venerable Ananda. So um, I don't feel that he gave up on, you know what, forget it, I'm not going to become an Arahant uh, type of a thing. Uh, but because they say how hard he worked. We, we have that in the Vinaya text as well. Um, that day before the first council, he didn't, after, after doing the walking, standing, sitting meditation, for an 80-year-old person in those days, it's a lot. And, but he was not letting go. He was not letting go of his sati, his determination. It was so sharp. Even though we know that he became an arahant in the point of transition, the junction posture, uh, as, as some call it, from the sitting posture where he sat on his bed and then he was about to put his head down on the pillow, he wasn't necessarily going to fall asleep because Lord Buddha talks about four postures. One of them is lying down in the lion's posture. So he might have wanted to continue meditating because how can you uh, say, yeah, I'm just going to take a nap because within a few hours, the first council is going to be held. And Venerable Maha Kassapa had encouraged him. Venerable Anuruddha had encouraged him. Don't give up, buddy. Don't give up. You, you got this. You got this. They were encouraging him. And even before his death, Lord Buddha had told him. Within a short while, I think, uh, I forgot the source, but basically it's, uh, if it's not in the Panini Sutta, uh, it's probably in the Vinaya. But uh, he says, in three months' time. So he had the guarantee, but from the Buddha himself, guarantee in that sense, because he loved Lord Buddha so much. So I'm sure that was resonating in his mind. And also there's is, is the encouragement that he was getting from Venerable Mahakasapa, who was going to preside over 
he was going to be the questioner. And Venerable Ananda was going to be the reciter. Because as you said, Terry, yeah, biggest chunk of the suttas we get from him. I mean, he's the one who says, I have personally heard this. That's Venerable Ananda. Evam me sutang. Those are his words that he's saying in the first council, whether to Venerable Mahakasapa, whether to Venerable Anuruddha, whoever was there, uh, asking him. Uh, so, so mm-hmm. yes. Was that a matter of him? Was that a matter of him trying too hard? You think? Well, there is a balance. I was explaining this to another student yesterday. Um, how. It is important to maintain the balance. Uh, so aditana is the determination. But remember, energy or virya, if it's just virya without the other factors of the bojhangas, then it's just going to burn you out. So mm-hmm. I'm sure he was balancing it as, as much as possible. He was bringing in sati, he was bringing in dhammavicha, he was bringing in tranquility of mind. He was bringing in samadhi, he was bringing in upekha, as well as piti and virya. So he was using all these because we have some beautiful suttas from him, from him that uh, where he was not an arahant yet. And you would think when you're listening or reading the sutta, the person who's saying these things must be an arahant, but he wasn't yet. Although afterwards, uh, when he became an arahant, you do have suttas where you can tell, oh, okay, this is Venerable Ananda, because it says it's Venerable Ananda, the way he's giving it, he's explaining it, correcting it. He's so on it. Uh, but it wasn't just uh, like burning with energy, uh, too much energy, because if it was, he wouldn't have become an arahant. Plain and simple. Mm-hmm. So he had to give up some of the higher fetters like craving, becoming, um, something like that. My last question is, uh, did he know that he would be the, um, the chronicler of the uh, discourses that he was hearing all the time? Did he know at the time he was hearing them that he would have to recite them later on? Is that well, known? It's hard to say if he did know or not, but definitely Lord Buddha did know. That's why he picked him, because mm. he was known for his um, uh, photographic, superb, memory. photographic memory, where he was able to remember every single thing, except for <laughs> when Lord Buddha's asking him for water, or when Lord Buddha's asking him, uh, hey, Ananda, do you know that... Uh, uh, a Buddha, if he is asked, he is asked, hint, hint, uh, to stay for an eon, he could extend his life energy, this and that. And Ananda is completely oblivious to this happening. So, uh, and Lord Buddha says this not only three times, but several times. And every single time uh, he misses out. And they say in the commentaries how it was Mara blocking his mind, blocking his heart. Mm-hmm. Etc. Did you yeah, have Yeah, I get that. that. Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Uh, I kind of relate to Ananda pretty closely. Um, I can remember people told me in detail last week, but I can't remember where I put my car keys, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he's an inspiration and I uh, appreciated the, uh, 
to talk today. Thank you. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's lovely because um, if you read the, the Teragatas, uh, the songs and the poems of the elders, you have a section that's dedicated. Uh, uh, well, there's a section for him. He is talking and. Uh, he says, there's a beautiful line there. He says, the 2000 teachings I got from the other bhikkhus during the council. The remaining 82,000 came from me, he says. Wow. 82,000 teachings came from him, having heard it himself, being witnessed uh, witnessed to them himself, or Lord Buddha had recounted them to him after they met, uh, because that was one of the requirements. He had a list of, I think, eight different things, uh, conditions, uh, when Lord Buddha made the suggestion, uh, as well as the Sangha, to have Venerable Ananda be his attendant, um, he bowed down and he said, Bhante, I would accept the position, uh, this honor, but under these, if these conditions are set. So um, one might think, oh, these are going to be self-serving type of conditions. Not at all. Um, he, I, I, I forgot all of them by, you know, each one, but paraphrasing them, basically, one that really stuck with me were, was when he goes and says, uh, because of being your kapiya, your attendant, uh, I request that I am not given any special privileges. That means the food I, uh, I eat. That means the robes I'm given, the shelter, the lodging I'm given. So basically the requisites need not be, I'm asking that as a condition, I don't get a special treatment simply because I'm your attendant. I'm Lord Buddha Tathagata's attendant. Look his, at his humility. And he says, uh, this is the key in re reference to the teachings. He says, I ask, he's, he's now in a sense, he's making a demand from Lord Buddha. Imagine that. I mean, it's his cousin, but at the same time, he's Lord Buddha. He says, Bhante, my other condition is that you, uh, those times where I am not present because of whatever responsibility, chores that I have to do, and Lord Buddha is giving a talk, so I'm not with you at that moment, or something happens where Lord Buddha is giving a dispensation, a teaching, and I'm not there, or I am present at a meeting, at a, at a teaching, but I don't understand. I expect Lord Buddha to tell me the instruction later uh, or when I'm absent physically so that Lord Buddha would re, uh, well, reteach it this time for me so that basically that also was not self-serving because his intention was and this could uh, tie into your last question as far as did he know. His worry was, how can I preserve the Dhamma? And he knew that he has an excellent memory. 
And he knew that Lord Buddha and the Sangha knew that he had that quality. How can I make sure that that continues? And for that reason, he asked uh, Lord Buddha's confirmation and agreement to that point that, yes, I will reteach it to you. I will explain it to you afterwards um, if you feel like, you know, so it's not going to be missed. So uh, we owe so much. And the 84,000 teachings that they say uh, that comprises the Dhamma, well, we know for 82,000 82, of those came directly from him. Uh, because we also have Venerable Upali who gave the Vinaya. He was responsible for the whole Vinaya because he was an expert. Um, and also Venerable Anuruddha had a lot to do, especially when it comes to the uh, part of the uh, Sangyuta Nikaya and also especially the um, Anguttara Nikaya numerical discourses. So they participated, of course, but he was the main uh, um, uh, person who was uh, reciting the suttas and uh, for a long time. And uh, yeah, so he is an inspiration, most definitely. And that is one of the reasons why I urge and, and uh, for us to really uh, not just cherish and respect the teachings, but most importantly, respect the teachings through the way that they inspire us to practice today. Because even though he was in such close proximity to the Buddha, he still was not an Arahant, which can be mind-boggling for many people. And we don't know if he was an Anagami, but, uh, but he definitely was a Sotapanna. That we know for sure. And the person who, who helped him to attain that was, if you recall from several, well, last year, Punna Mantani Putta. He was the one who actually, uh, from the relay chariots, if you remember, uh, Venerable Punna Mantani Putta from uh, uh, the Sakyan clan. Uh, he had taught him and by listening to Venerable Punna Mantani Putta, he had attained Sotapanna stage. But he had indulged too much in his human relationships, in his activities, in his running around and doing things for the Buddha or just the community, being a liaison, doing other things. And Lord Buddha always tried to pull him back and the other bhikkhus, Venerable Sariputta, but he had this leaning towards, well, yeah, let me do this. Let me help this. Instead of doing the work that he needed to have done earlier. And he realized that on the night when Lord Buddha was passing, dying. And he was very remorseful. So as far as his attainment, it wasn't just that day prior to the council, mind you, even though we like to read it like that, people have written books on. Um, he had been, especially from that night on, when Lord Buddha died, up until the three months time, when King Ajatasattu uh, set up the whole cave in, in Rajgir, he was practicing 
but especially that very last night. So that was like, I'm going to die trying. I don't care. I'm going to make it to that council. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm alive. That's why Lord Buddha picked me. I'm, I'm feeling that that might have been the, the, the impetus for him to continue. It's a life and death sounds like, situation. Sounds like, sounds like trying too hard to be. Well, sometimes you have to try too hard when you are pushing yourself out of inertia. You have to. In our culture, there is this, well, you have to be balanced. You have No, sometimes you have to push hard, harder than you ever have. And, uh, but it has to always be crowned by wisdom. That is key. So in order for you to move a car that is absolutely still, it's, the engine is off, you're dealing with a massive inertia to deal with, to move in time and space. So, but once it moves, you don't have to apply that intensive an effort anymore because the wheels are rolling now. So, and that is what I, why a lot of people are stuck in their ditches because they're thinking, no, I'm not, I don't need to be trying so hard. I don't need to be so, uh, so stringent with the precepts. No. Whatever you've been doing so far is the reason why you're still stuck because you're still continuing to do uh, the same, uh, apply the same amount of energy. So there's a time and a place. So we need to be allowing ourselves to push through the inertia and that is where ignorance happens. And that's why a lot of people, even as a noble disciple, as we see with Venerable Ananda, you can get stuck. And I know people who are stuck for years, decades. And they thinking, yeah, we're good. We're good to go. No, at least, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, at the very least, I'm going to be reborn in this realm. How do you know? Well, because I'm, no. Or I can reach the eighth John or whatever. Pointless. Are you alive? Okay. Are you an arahant yet? No. Okay. Then you got work to do. So whatever you've been doing, it hasn't been the correct uh, procedure. So you need to apply more of this, less of that. And that is where the suttas are extremely important for us to bring into our lives to challenge our status quo. The bojangas are wonderful tools. This Indriya Bhavana Sutta is a wonderful tool to check whether my attention is in the right place at all times. And if it's not, why isn't it? Why isn't it? That is where the person starts to involve, uh, bring in more of uh, uh, that projection light, just shine it on what is my chanda? What is my enthusiasm really on? What am I animated about the most? Is and the Dhamma... And what, what you can see as well. Yeah, so many people have, many of us have uh, these uh, wrong views, which we have termed as, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I know from my own like interviews with students, uh, you hit a point and they go, uh, basically, they're holding out their invisible hand and saying, I'm good, I'm good, Bhante. Uh, you don't need to push me any further on this because this is a sensitive area. Uh, I'm Up until this point, that's my tender spot, so let's not 
there it is, a missed opportunity. And for 25 years at least, Lord Buddha had been pushing that button with Venerable Ananda. Lord Buddha was pushing the button. And so was Venerable Sariputta. Remember, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana died six months prior to the Buddha. And Venerable Ananda had a very strong relationship with Venerable Sariputta. He considered him his other teacher. And uh, he was extremely distraught when Venerable Sariputta died because he also felt like, I blew it. I blew my opportunity. How am I going to do it now? Basically, because Venerable Sariputta had helped him throughout all those years, guiding him, teaching him, but he never cracked the egg, his egg, his egg of avidya. And many of us are afraid to crack it. Um, so we need to apply, like in my days as a fitness trainer years ago, I remember how when a person, I would train someone and I would have them do uh, push-ups, for example, and they say, my limit at the most is seven. And I would push them beyond seven and they were like, it's impossible. And I say, no, no, we got to do this. And they had to exert enormous energy because it wasn't just gravity they were pushing against. They were pushing against the inertia of, I cannot do this in their mind. So there was that mental block that they had convinced themselves is unmovable, immovable. It's a mountain. And that's what is holding us back. Each of us has our own Everest. It could be small, it could be big. But for each of us, it is the worst. And we have made it invisible. That's the invisible hand saying, no, no, I'm good up until this point. So I'm okay with this. I'm satisfied with this. And I would love for Venerable Ananda's, uh, because we've been talking about him for quite some time now, to inspire us to look at what is my invisible Everest? What is my inertia? What is the thing which is holding me back that I'm making excuses for not to be as engaged in my practice as I should be? Therefore, am I an arahant yet? And if I'm not, why is that? That would be another prompt that we could give ourselves. Have I tasted the Dhamma? Okay, why not? Let me look again at my MO, at my, at my, at my process. What am I missing? What am I doing wrong? Let me ask questions. So which puts the whole practice in the crosshairs and you're like, okay, now I, it's unavoidable. Because this is your life. This is your precious, rare, rare life. Because in this life, you have encountered the Dhamma, which is an incredible, incredible opportunity that is not to be missed. Look at the world around us, see the confusion, see where it's going. And I was mentioning this a few weeks ago to someone, 
we would be lucky to have the Dhamma still around in a hundred years, actually less than that, 50 years now, because of whatever is happening, because of all the corruptions I'm seeing, infiltrating, and even the ones that we do initially, intentionally, uh, individually on ourselves. So now we have the Dhamma still, and in one form or another, and we can practice and we can most definitely attain the fruits, the paths and the fruits, Nibbana, in this life, in this body of yours, pinch yourself, this body, that, this body, you can taste Nibbana, but it has its price, and that is Yoniso Manasikara, your proper, wise attention. As reflected in the three trainings, Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Don't miss this opportunity, guys, of being alive. And that is the urgency with which Ajahn Man used to talk. We used to shake the sala whenever he gave a Dhamma talk. His students would shiver sometimes because it would be so intense because they would know this is Dhamma that is sitting there. He was the Dhamma because the person... who sees the Arahant, sees the Dhamma. They're inseparable from Lord Buddha. Lord Buddha did not exist in the text, is not in the text, in the suttas. It's in the genuineness of our practice. It's life and death, and that is the approach that is necessary. The only price that is to pay is one's life what else is there worthy enough for that prize that's the most precious thing we have and we have to give it and fortunately we don't have to kill ourselves <laughs> but for some of us it feels like that we'd rather go to falling into the liking and disliking hole in the ditch in I like you or I hate you ditch, rather than watching the mind, observing the mind, observing these tendencies have a go at us and steal our life from us. Living irresponsibly and telling the constant lies we keep telling ourselves. Meanwhile, time is running out. Time is running out. And people are dying. And who knows when our turn is going to be, you know, it's up. Okay, your turn. What have I done meanwhile? What have I done with the Dhamma that was presented to me in this rare opportunity in this life? So I will stop here because uh, my throat has begun to uh, hurt. <laughs> So uh, next week we will, uh, great questions, Terry. Uh, next week we will resume the uh, two-hour sitting and then the Dhamma talk. Um, and it's great seeing you after uh, my own personal retreat. Um, and uh, yes, so let us uh, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be.
May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sad, sad, sad. Be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you and your loved ones. Practice, practice, practice. Practice with a smile in your heart and on your face. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>